Welcome to the Coming Clean Podcast with your host, Peter O. For over 25 years, entrepreneur, speaker, and CEO Peter O. Estevez has built businesses all over the world, and today he shares his experiences, failures, and successes along the side of some of the most sought-after thought leaders to help you pave your way to success. Please welcome to the show your host, Peter O. Estevez. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Peter O. Estevez Show. This is your host, Peter O. Estevez. You know, I can't even believe that I said that. The Peter O. Estevez Show. You know, today is the first of many. It's our 101 podcast episode. It marks the new season. It marks the new season of a new format. And then under this new format, we're going to be bringing a lot of celebrities as guests to the podcast. We're also going to be my friend and partner, Tim Story, is going to co-host some of the show. Our other friend and partner, Selena Bellison, is going to be co-hosting the show. We're going to have a roundtable. A lot of exciting things are coming up as part of the new format. We have an incredible lineup of celebrities and, and incredible thought leaders from across the world. Our format is the same. It's just different personalities, a different season, a different spin. And we're going to start today with none other than Chris Madman. Hello, Chris, and welcome to the Peter O. Estevez Show. Peter, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks for giving me the agency to be here and uh, happy to be on Centennial Plus One of the show. So. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, Chris, you are a legend. Chris is a Chief Technology Innovation Officer at NASA, the Jet Proposition Laboratory. His work has helped NASA explore space and help journalists and government track international financial crime among the world's elite across the globe. He is best known for a 20-year career inventing the most downloaded software on the planet, culminating from his membership on the Apache Software Foundation Board of Directors, creating technology that powers all data systems in industry, including Nooch, Hadoop, and his pioneer work of building the Tika Library. Tika, the digital babblefish, is the key technology to solve the Panama Papers and won the Pulitzer Prize in journalism in 2017. Chris is a frequent keynote speaker in government, academia, industry, and his work has helped define the field of data science. Hello, Chris. Again, welcome to the Peter O. Estevez Show. What an honor to have you. What a privilege to have you. I am excited to dig in. Yeah, so am I, brother. So am I. And, uh, you know, just really looking forward to having a great conversation, which I'm sure we will. I am too. You know, you have been involved in the development of some of the most widely used software in the world. Hadoop, the industry standard, but also plenty of other software at the Apache Software Foundation where you were a board member. Tell us a little bit about that and what does that software do and what really milestones and impact has had had in the world? It sort of was interesting. You know, I kind of fell a little bit into that role. You know, so basically what was happening is the world was changing over the last 20 years. We see it every day in things like our iPhones and things like that today. It's like you talk to photographers and these amazing people, you know, take Getty images and stuff like that. It's like, well, I don't need this amazing camera with the huge lens anymore because my iPhone can take just as good pictures. And they're actually, you know, they're telling the truth. And so part of that is instruments and things that used to be sort of only you know, in these sort of elite environments constructed in the world's labs and things like that for cameras, for imaging, for measuring science, they became commoditized. And along the way for that, so did really the processing of the information from them. 
It's not just big media companies or places like that or film studios that can process that data or even scientific labs. It's really everybody today, Peter. And uh, over that last 20 years, what they sort of needed over the time and what happened is that the world's sort of elite, the company's elite that previously only had proprietary access to that technology, many started to build capabilities that really made it democratized, really kind of gave access to the software to kind of handle that. So when I was basically starting out at JPL 20 years ago, when I was studying at university and things like that, I was really interested in that evolution. Uh, It started with search engines, it started with Google and things like that, and really changing the way that information was searched and accessed and things like that. And also changed the way that information, again, was processed. The big movement away was buying, you know, these really, really expensive exotic computing hardware to really, and I don't know if, you know, maybe your audience will remember this, walking into a Fry's store, Fry's Electronics, you know, and buying some cheap computers. And that's really what Google showed that you could do. They showed that you could go out there, buy cheap computers, farm them together, network them together. And the reality is the way to make those systems scale like the big other companies and Google wasn't as big, you know, back then was really to develop software that could handle failure and resiliency. And you hear this a lot today. You hear it in the startup world and things like that. You hear people talking about failing fast and getting up even faster. And that mentality is really kind of the the onus and how I, you know, how I got started in open source. So Google showed the world that if you could build software on top of these cheapo, you know, computer parts and things like that, you could scale to the world's largest problems. The open source community saw that and said, hey, we can replicate that. And that's where Hadoop and all of these technologies and capabilities came from. Google showed us how to do it. They published papers, gave us sort of the recipe in the manual for what to do after that. And then some of us got together, we wrote the software, and then we made that available to the world. And so that's, that's what I was involved in. Chris, you are a very humble individual, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly knowledgeable. And I commend you for that, uh, for your humility more than anything else. You said something, you cited something that is very important. Information technology has been democratized, demonetized, and digitized, and has become affordable and accessible to everybody uh, for the most part. And you have been a pioneer in the forefront of that. But the reality is that you're a very young man. And you also come from very humble beginnings. I don't want to let that escape. I don't want to let that go because I think it's important for the audience, more importantly, how reachable, especially today, in a power of not only knowledge and information, but access to learning and growing and evolving. Tell us a little bit about your background and how did you end up at NASA with such an incredible title? Yeah, man, you know, Peter and I connected kind of offline on this is one of the reasons also I wanted to do this show. I love Peter talks about me being humble. He's he's amazing, you know, and if you haven't already, go back and listen to previous episodes of the show. I grew up in a trailer in Santa Clarita and Santa Clarita is about an hour north of L.A. And uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 funny, you know, we were middle class and my dad lost his business. And, you know, after that, our lives changed. Yeah, I was the type of guy I joke around living off of government cheese. And the other joke was 50 grit toilet paper, you know, <laughs> and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that that was us. We had a loving family. My grandmother helped raise us. My mother had mental illness. So she was in and out of our lives growing up, I, my brother and I. My father was around, but, you know, he was a father of the old age. He went to work early, came home late. He certainly liked his ice cream and, and things like that, you know, and other things. But I think the first real conversation I had with him was when I was like 15 or 16, <laughs> reading wow. the paper. 
I joke, my brother was out, you know, he was the extrovert. I was the introvert. At that time, I joked, my brother was out with the ladies while I was at home, you know, reading the paper and watching sports. And yeah, you know, I, I invested in my mind at the time. And I was, I'm the biggest sports fan in the world. You know, Peter and I joke about this too, but you can go look at my Instagram. You can look at, I love sports, all sports. I'm a big USC football fan, things like this. But yeah, I was, I realized kind of at that age in high school that I was never going to get above five, nine and a, about a 180 clip, <laughs> you know, and things. And so it's not exactly your prototypical uh, athlete. So I started investing my mind. I put it to use, uh, learned a little bit about computers and, you know, I I had a 4.8, which is out of 5.0 at high school. And basically I wrote my ticket to where I wanted to apply, but I only applied to two colleges. I applied to USC and to University of Michigan and got into USC and I couldn't afford it, but luckily they had lots of grants and other programs and student loans, which, you know, I'm still paying off. So I went to USC and I was a fish out of water, you know, growing up in Santa Clarita, it's funny. It's, it's like LA, it's an hour North, but Santa Clarita, I think, you know, I tell people it wasn't exactly too diverse joke around the first time I saw an African-American person. <laughs> I mean, this is being farcical, but it's like, sure, you know, sure. you go to downtown LA and it was great, you know, being thrown into kind of a melting pot and so on and so forth. And I embraced it. You know, I was born in Los Angeles, born at uh, USC County, USC hospital. And it was just such a growth environment for me to kind of go there to USC and to kind of be in that environment. And so I, I shifted. And over the last 20 years, actually, it's funny, my brother and I would joke, and now I'm the extrovert and things like that. But yeah, I kind of had to rapidly, I, I realized like everything wasn't only about books and things like that. And I embraced the LA lifestyle. I really enjoyed, I got out, I, you know, I started to meet people, go to parties, enjoy life, things like that. And so for me, you know, pretty quickly, USC was going through an evolution at the time, uh, I would say into a real serious academic school, especially in engineering and computers and things like that. So it was a perfect time for me, you know, to really be part of kind of that revolution, like you and I talked about as the world and IT was changing. Absolutely. Yeah. From the trailer home to the chief technology and innovation <laughs> officer at NASA. What an incredible success story. Chris, you are incredibly passionate about sports and the USC athletics. What is the relationship between sports and the data research that you do? How do they meet? How do they integrate? Yeah. Oh, great question. Basically, the way they integrate is sort of like this. So as the world was changing in science and instruments and things like that, athletics also could take advantage. You know, think of athletics and sports as an observatory <laughs> instead of instruments going around planets and things like that. We got athletes running around a field and we can instrument them, you know, on their pads. We have sensors nowadays in football and things like that. We, we know where they're at on the field, GPS positioning in basketball. You see people modeling where people shoot and doing analytics for free throws. Uh, You know, you see this in baseball too. So the relationship there, Peter, is that long gone are the days in which that information is simply collected. Now we can do a lot with it. And, and actually, it has to do with that IT revolution with Google and things like that as the ability to process large amounts of information and then actually turn it into knowledge and then decide what to do with it. Really, now, you know, baseball, football, you hear about analytics all the time. Now, between you, me and the wall, the fields are still part of that. You still need to have managers that don't just sit there. I mean, the Dodgers, we like Dave Green, but, you know, the Dodger, Dave Rogers, sorry, the, the Dodgers, you know, a little too much of that sometimes. You still need to have a feel for the game and all those ancillary signals and features and things about the people don't only do analytics, but they can inform a lot about decision-making in the game. We can process it. We can ask all sorts of questions, you know, about that, that sort of, now we have the data to to answer it. 
But you know what? what I, I, you have a great time out there. I can see that you do an incredible job separating yourself from the data scientists to the, the amateur sports guys that sat there with the family, enjoying the game, doing lives on Instagram. I mean, you really, really, really get into it, Chris. I do. I do, brother. I do get into it. I got to enjoy it. Yeah. You know, I can't go there and just look at a spreadsheet the whole time. Yeah. You know, I got to have a beer. I got to sit there and be around my kids, get them some popcorn. You know, you nailed it, man. So that's kind of a little bit about what I was talking about in a way, because I think, and you and I talk about this too. I think part of this is just experiencing life and then being part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I told you, I mean, I, I was at my son's uh, OSU game a couple of weeks ago. You I know, saw but, that. Yeah, yeah. And, and and the energy, the excitement, you know, is is a completely, is, is an incredible culture. It's an incredible culture when you're in there and you become part of the school and the sport and the whole event is incredible. The energy that you get from that is unlike anything else. How do you go from rocket science and exploring the universe and Earth to all the other pivots? You know, the financial crime and international money laundering with the Panama Papers. How did you get involved in that? Uh, how did you end up being part of the Pulitzer uh, Prize? So, Peter, um, the connection to a little bit dates back. So at USC, I got a gig at JPL as an intern my sophomore year there. I didn't know much other than it was a place to work and they wanted computer programmers, you know, to help out these scientists. I get there, it really started meaning something to me when those Mars rovers landed in 2003-04, those twin rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. You know, it's nothing that shows you you work at JPL, like the governor of California, Schwarzenegger, walking down, shaking hands with your buddies in mission control, seeing those things land on Mars. And I was like, God, I work here. This is amazing. And then really kind of fast forward a little bit. I did that for about a decade. I worked on several NASA missions, planetary missions. I worked on Earth science missions, things like that. After a decade, um, I learned a lot about all the things I wanted to fix about the missions and the technology and what we could do better. And the other thing that I learned, unfortunately, and or fortunately, every, every agency in the government has their missions. And NASA's mission is, again, planetary science, rocks, geology, you know, exploring space, foundations of life. It's not always technology development. And I realized about myself, I mean, computer IT technology development. I realized about myself that was a real passion. And part of realizing that and all the things that I could improve on our missions is that I had to go to build a diverse sponsor list that wasn't just NASA to go out and get the dollars where people were investing in really advancing computer science, advancing the things that we would need in data. And so that's how I got connected to basically the Department of Defense and started doing work with what eventually would lead to human trafficking, financial crimes, and money laundering. What happened was there was a lot of dollars of investment. You know, DOD, big banks, the government, the SEC, they also were realizing that data pivot, which grew in science, in commodity and user productivity iPhones, made its way into the financial sector, to the Department of Defense and Telecom Communications. It was hitting them hard. And they had so much data to basically analyze, you know, figure out what was going on, is that I pivoted a lot of that science tech that we were building to do that into that space. And I got involved with the DARPA program in 2014 called Memex, which was all about basically stopping human trafficking. You know, it's like now with human trafficking, on every bus stop, we know a lot about this nowadays. We know that women are trafficked. We know that children are trafficked. And especially with what's going on with immigration and other things, you hear a lot about that now. In 2014, you didn't. It mainly had to do with international terrorism, ISIS, things like this. 
And so that's how I pivoted. I took a lot of the, the NASA, the open source technology that we built to manage science data, brought it into that space, enhanced it basically for the government, got government dollars to did it and brought it back really to the science community after that. And so, yeah, the work on Memex led to really enhancing some of these Apache libraries I was building called like Tika. And that is really the core software that was used and picked up by these journalists to analyze the data leaks that came from Monseca, which was all the shell companies that people created. And that's really what led to the Panama Papers and the 2017 Pulitzer Prize. Just as a reference point, tell us a little bit more about what the Panama Papers is. So some of our audience is a lot younger, uh, obviously, a lot of millennials and a lot of Gen Zers that may not be aware of what the Panama Papers are. I've seen the, in fact, there's a there's an actually documentary on the Matsaka on the, on the case, so, so it's an, it, which is an incredible documentary, by the way. And I encourage anybody that is interested in this, especially after seeing this interview, that you go out there and dig out that documentary on Netflix on Monsaka. So tell us a little bit about what that was and the impact that it had on the world. Yeah. So the Panama Papers was basically kind of, here's the story. In 2015, 2016, what happens with people is that people are looking for tax havens, usually the wealthy or the rich. And what those are is they're trying, they're looking to ways to avoid taxes. And as you really explore the financial system, you find out most of this is legal. It's just, there are ways to avoid taxes. And the way to do it is you establish these basically these shell companies in places that have, you know, more, I'd say, amenable, tax-friendly ways to do that, to reduce your tax liability. And companies that set up these sort of shell holdings and things like that to defer and, quote, hide your money, they have data on who their clients are and what companies they've set up and things like that. And so in 2015, 2016, one of these companies, Monsaka, had a data leak. They were hacked, you know, and 11 terabytes of all of their information about all the clients they serve and things like that was was leaked. And it was private at the time. And what happened is it was leaked to a bunch of journalists. And so, you know, I tell people this, this tech that I built in Apache and, and, and things like that, whether you're Osama bin Laden and they're raiding your compound and getting a bunch of hard drives and computers that you then quickly have to analyze to figure out what's going on with terrorists, or whether you got one of these data leaks from Monsaka and things like that about who's doing what with their finances, and you need to quickly analyze it. It's the same use case. You've got a bunch of data that has a lot of different file types, a lot of different files, terabytes of information, and you need to quickly analyze it, find out the people, the places, the things, the locations in it, the connections. That's what the software, the Tika stuff that I built, the Digital Babel Fish does. And so what happened with the Panama Papers is that 400 journalists, part of the International Consortium for Journalists, got this leak and they started looking at it. And basically what they found out, Peter, is like the prime minister of Iceland at the time. Uh, you know, big state digni dignitaries, actors, actresses, you know, Emma Watson, one of my favorites, Hermione Granger, <laughs> you know, <laughs> people hide their money. They showed up in the connections for establishing these shell companies. And so what those journalists did is they analyzed it for a few years. They used Tika as the foundational software that, that I built. And they published a big report called the Panama Papers, which basically described who, what, where, when, and how they were hiding their money, you know, to avoid taxes. And let's clarify by saying that some of those structures are legal structures. Totally. They're not commonly known to the average individual. You've been at NASA JPL for over 20 years. You must love that place. And I can see like, it looks like you're having a lot of fun. What exactly do you do? What, what, what is it that you, I mean, you, you have been involved in various projects between years is a long time to be anywhere. 
Okay. Especially in today's world where there's so much ability, you can work from anywhere in the world. There's so many opportunities for creative minds like yourselves to become entrepreneurs. So tell us what you do, why do you do it, and what's next? Yeah. So for me, I'll tell you, Peter, what I do there has sort of taken, I would say, two or three different pivots. The first pivot, like I said, that first 10 years, I did a lot of science mission development. I was the chief architect in our instrument systems division for that. The second 10 years, the second decade, the first five of which I was building those technology programs, building software, helping to do the financial crimes and, you know, all the Pulitzer stuff. The last five years, I've made a pivot into IT. And so really this defines, uh, you know, what, what I do today. But that pivot into IT, I moved to be the deputy CTO. And I started, I learned a lot about data and the world was changing at the time. You know, data scientists became a sexy job. You know, now we have AI engineer as a sexy job, automation, you know, things like that. And I will say related to that, what I do is I became the deputy CTO and now I'm the uh, the CTO. And what I do is I lead the innovation division. We have multiple teams in it. I kind of lead the cloud practice. The cloud is sort of an innovation area, deploying cloud for scientists and so on and so forth. And then after that, we also have a bunch of data scientists. So we have a data science team that I, you know, lead. And then finally, um, you know, another innovation area that people are looking a lot at today is XR, AR, VR. That's really augmented reality, virtual reality, and these types of things. And so in that space, in that environment, those three teams are kind of our core teams. And what I do is I'm our job is to look at the future. You know, what are the needs of mission, science, engineering, and things like that? And how do we deploy those teams? How do we get the new innovative engineers, deploy them to our missions and our projects in those technological areas. You know, typically, Chris, when we see or when we think of a scientist, you know, we think of a guy in a lab coat, you know, with his nerdy glasses, with his hair sticking up. The only time (laughs) I see your hair sticking up is when you're running. (laughs) (laughs) When you go out for your jogs. But other than that, I see you, it seems like you have an incredible social life. I see you at opening of art expositions. I see you at culture events. I see you at media events. I see you at music venues. You're everywhere. So who are your favorite artists? What do you do for fun? Uh, is your wife an artist, by the way? Because I, I, I see a lot of photos with you and her. And, and it looks like, I mean, it looks like to me like she's an artist. Yeah. Yeah. My wife is a photographer, uh, okay. Peter. She, yeah. And she was an undergrad art history major at Whittier College and is very, you know, into the arts and lifestyle and things like that. And today she shoots families and babies and does like photography. Uh, she'll do the occasional wedding, but she really does enjoy lifestyle type of things and shooting families and really babies and kids. And that kind of coincided a little with the development of our own family, uh, you know, related to that. But, but yeah, no, I love, I've always been a pop culture person. I love media and arts, you know, some of my favorite artists, you know, I love hip hop, R&B, dating back to probably Craig David, you know, Usher and things like that. But we just went to her at the Hollywood Bowl. I love her. You know, she was an amazing artist who I hadn't really kind of indoctrinated myself into. And and my wife was a big fan of, she's always ahead of me, but, uh, you know, really enjoyed that. Saw Christina Aguilera at the Bowl. So I'll go to events like that. I love sports. I love movies. I'm a huge Marvel fan. Uh, I love comics. Part of my kind of evolution, and I always was a fan being sort of a nerd of these things, but I took a little hiatus, you know, over the last 15 years. But as your children start to get older, you know, you can relive and re-experience some of those things that you used to be passionate about. And so that's been me. I've really been doubling and tripling down on that. And part of everything that's going on 
in the technology, the arts, the media community nowadays is really driving a lot of innovation. Media is driving it, you know, from the NFTs and the blockchain, you know, you and I, I think initially met on Clubhouse, you know, this new social audio app in which a lot of innovation is going on. So yeah, the, you know, I, I tend to get out, I tend to be popping around the Hollywood area, really love art and paintings and everything that's going on there. Um, you know, really, really enjoy that stuff. Let's talk about uh, the NFT space and the crypto space. Are you invested in there and why? And what would be your advice from a personal perspective, not from a professional perspective, on how to enter those spaces? My advice basically for folks, and it's it's the same really whether you're doing this in the technology space or the crypto space or or anything, is to really kind of understand and get involved with the community. And part of that starts with active listening, Peter. And just kind of soaking in a little bit of what are the priorities? Who are the key nodes and links in this community? What are the things? Does it overlap with your own interests? And then to start to make contributions. And they start out really small, incremental. Maybe if it's a room or an audio app, you're jumping in on that. You're basically just standing and asking a question to eventually developing your own sort of take on those priorities and helping chew one off and then drive it in a particular direction that feeds the sort of overall community's priorities and goods. And that's the way it always starts out. And you do that for enough time, you start to become your own leader at your level and then eventually at higher levels in a community and you become one of the important nodes and so on and so forth. And it's all about understanding too how you can do that in a way that adds value, that can be done in parallel, doesn't stomp all over everyone else's contributions and does it in a productive way. And I've seen that formula work in every community. And, and where I've seen it fail is when someone thinks immediately the node has to be all about them or that everything has to come through them or they become like a gate and things like that. Folks that look at a big set of priorities and things that you want to do and achieve can break it down into a bunch of independent parallel parts, add your value in your part so it becomes part of the whole those seem to be the most effective ways I've seen for folks to get involved. So just start small, jump into a room as the world opens, go to a tech event, make your voice heard, find something you're passionate and interested in working about, add value in that area. And between you, me and the wall, I think you're very successful. Maybe you've employed that in your own you know, life, Peter, but that's how I've gotten here basically is just to move the needle in all these different ways, absolutely, you know, slightly. Absolutely. Relationships, collaboration, contribution. And it's not any other way. Tell us a little bit more about the NFT space and the crypto space. Are we late? Is, is it late for somebody that wants to get into it? It's totally not late. No, it's tons of time. The crypto space, the underlying foundation technology to crypto is something called blockchain, which that technology, I would not say is like to the point of mature as say the development of the internet and things like that. It is still constantly evolving. There are several technological players in blockchain, it's not clear who's going to win from Bitcoin to Hyperledger to Ethereum. You know, there's lots of different of these platforms and there's no one clear winner. So lots of things are happening in that space for the underlying technology and lots of bets are being made. Lots of innovation is happening. Lots to kind of happen in the technology. And foundationally, on top of that, there are different verticals. There's NFTs, like you said, which are basically media releases on the blockchain, you know, of art, of music, of you know, movies and things like that, um, culture, sound, things that people are releasing. 
And uh, that sits foundationally on the blockchain. There are communities around that for distribution of that, for ownership, for rare collectibles. That is happening. There's lots that's happening even outside of the technology space just in that of supporting each other, people in communities doing that. And then there's cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, there's investing, there's DeFi, decentralized finance, lots of different verticals on top of this foundational kind of space. So it's not late. Um, both in the technology sector, in which I expect a lot of the standards to evolve, because again, they're not there yet. It's not like it's done and they're just in maintenance mode. Like you could get involved and really make material contributions to the technology at this point. And then in the verticals, the verticals are always going to be there. Now, in 10 years, we might have a new underpinning new technology that these verticals will still exist. These verticals existed 20 years ago, people figuring out how to curate, push out art and media in different distribution platforms and things. So all the verticals will be there. You should always continue contributing to those, but the underlying foundational technology, lots of room for big contributions there. Perfect. I have three more questions being respectful of your time. NASA in the last few months has released some of the uh, files of UFOs, unidentified flying objects. Okay. Now there's a new acronym for that. Can you tell me what, the, what it is? They don't call them UFOs anymore. They call them something else. Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, okay. UAPs. Uh, tell us two questions in the, uh, regarding that. Why did they release those files? Okay. And is there strangers among us? <laughs> oh, it's, ask me an easy one. No. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. So, so why they released that? So those were released by the Department of Defense. NASA is a civilian agency, although if you look long ago, it was created as a arm of the Department of Defense in the 1950s, but it has since become a civilian agency. We do do work with the Department of Defense. Thank you for the um, clarification. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It's, it's, it's interesting. They're all interconnected somehow, yeah. you know, but yeah, why they released them, I think is because clearly there are things that highly trained pilots, highly trained military and defense pilots, not just commercial airline, you know, pilots have seen that they don't have great explanations for. And at some level, to the second point of your question, all of this becomes a leap of faith at some point. No one on you know two sides of an argument, you know, there's aliens, there's not aliens. Neither side has definitive proof of the other. You know, Carl Sagan used to say extraordinary beliefs require extraordinary proof. And, you know, it's a fair comment. But that said, you know, the people who believe in this, it's really hard to negate. Because again, those that say this doesn't exist or whatever, look at the Drake equation, which talks about the amount of exoplanets out there with, that have possible life, you know, just estimates that in the universe. My personal belief is that we aren't alone. I do believe that it's, it's certainly possible and it's highly likely that there's alien life out there. Whether these planes or these, I'm sorry, these aerial phenomenon are that, I don't know. Um, and I know that's not maybe the answer everyone wants, but I'm telling you, my personal belief is I do believe that they're out there. No one can prove me wrong, by the way. <laughs> and then I'm similarly, I can't produce a gray alien. So, you know. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And the reality is that we would be extremely arrogant to believe that we are the only species in this world. Right. Okay. It's a very human. It's a very human belief that we are the only ones, in my opinion, as well, Peter. Yeah. Let's talk about AI. AI has made incredible leaps in the last few years. Okay. But there's also a lot of fear, primarily in the service industry, in a lot of industry where jobs are, are becoming automated. Okay. There's a fear that, that there's going to be thousands, if not millions of people across the world that are going to be unemployed. Now, how do we fill in that gap? And what is the impact AI is having in our economy and in the world across? Yeah, AI, we're at an AI revolution right now. 
Yeah. And, and really the first places that we're feeling it in all the areas that you talk about, like you said, is automation. And take the example, Flippy the robot from Miso Robotics, as an example, it's a robot, basically burger flipper. And that's at its you know lowest level. It's looking at jobs that have skills that are easily transferable to the robots. And, but they have a social impact. You know, I think about my, my son, my first job was at Wendy's, <laughs> you know, I lasted three weeks <laughs> and uh, I won't tell you what it, I, this big soccer team came and uh, you know, they just overloaded me at the cash register, but uh, scared me off. But uh, you look at that and that, that will displace certain of those types of jobs. But probably the bigger thing you hear people talk about in this space is like truck driving. Truck driving is a, I won't say it's a low skill, but it doesn't require, say, high education, but it's a good paying, in some cases, six-figure job. And with automated trucks uh, that Elon and others are building and their time to market in the next two to five years of potentially being there, it has potential to displace a million truckers. And the big thing that I tell people, you know, kind of related to this is we have to look at skills transition. The answer isn't learn to code, taking a trucker, oh, go learn to be a programmer. The answer isn't learn to code. It's how do we get the value from your 20 years of knowledge and really give you a way to transition that knowledge and that value? And that's your job. That becomes your job. And in doing that, you're going to learn, just like I did, all the stuff you wanted to fix about the way that you did it. And that's going to lead to your next job. We got to focus on skills transition. Call those truckers, call whatever job we're displacing subject matter experts, pay them, pay them well to really you know, give feedback on these systems. So the AI never fully replaces us autonomously. There still has to be human review. And that's going to be the key. Those human reviews are our subject matter ex- uh, experts. We need to empower them. We need to, again, pay them well, pay them for their skills transition. And the answer isn't learn to code. So let's talk about the elephant. And I'm not even going to call it in the room. I'm going to call it in the world, Corona and the vaccine issue. I know that NASA is now a civilian organization works closely with the Department of Defense, and I'm sure many other organizations of the government that have the security interests of of our nation at large. So is there anything from your end, from NASA's end, that they're doing to accelerate the vaccine process? Is there anything that you can tell us to give us to pacify the fear mongle that is out there? Yeah, there's a lot of concern, you know, nowadays to Peter, there's a lot of disinformation that's out there on the internet. There's a lot of we're even having it on the rooms at Clubhouse. I mean, we uh, there's rooms that are being hosted for hours and hours with a whole bunch of people that are not scientists that are not doctors that have zero, zero, zero knowledge of information. They're basically repeating mongols of what they hear. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've I've seen it. I've seen it too. And uh, to directly answer your question, a couple of things, you know, in the early parts of the pandemic, NASA did develop a couple of things. We developed a ventilator that we provided and licensed to companies to basically deliver for free. And so that ventilator was called Vital. And we did that. That was in, I think, April 2020. I was also involved in a project to develop 3D printed face mask respirators for folks. And basically what this would be is like, you know, in areas where you don't have the necessary supplies as part of the supply chain, or you don't want to disrupt the medical supply chain, basically be able to, as long as you had like a $700 or cheaper, you know, 3D printer, which in India, you know, they have these at all the universities now. And when they were hit with the Delta, uh, this was very useful to them. Um, But we did it because we were hoping it would help hospitals, PPE and things like that. So we did a couple of things kind of in that area. And then recently, with respect to the vaccine, you know, itself, probably the the closest thing I I would say, we're not directly involved in the distribution or or things related to that. But we did, we have done IT work in helping to sift through and and kind of sort through some of the misinformation 
and things that are out there. My biggest thing, I, I guess, to share with the audience, the vaccines are safe. They're effective. I, I talk about this a lot on Twitter. Even mainstream media struggles you know, with the narrative sometimes. I think media I had an article about Delta and how the initial thing was, you know, oh, if you're vaccinated, it doesn't matter. And as it's come out, that was like the wrong interpretation because it's what people are seeing. And I'll kind of just share my own kind of opinion on this now is, is science politicized in a way. And, and the reality is, you know, scientists have always disagreed. Uh, you know, the famous reviewer number three syndrome where reviewer three kills your paper, you know, and you're <laughs> reviewer three. Scientists have, have disagreed forever. And that's fine. That's science. The evolution, the truth is out there. So what you're seeing is sort of the real time of that play out with, you know, clickbait headlines on all sides trying to kind of trounce each other. Back to the vaccines. The vaccines are safe. They're effective. Your definition of effective matters. Does that mean you're never going to get sick? If you've had a COVID vaccine, probably not, but that was never their definition of effective. It means you're not going to get in a hospital and die, and you're not going to have severe disease when you get in there, the vast majority of people that get vaccine. That's what they were engineered and designed for. COVID was a overwhelming of our hospitals issue. The hospital systems weren't really set up in the US and really around the world, but in particular, even more so in the US, given our population, they weren't ready to kind of have and receive those influxes. And so the vaccines were designed to basically prevent people from getting severely sick and dying in our hospitals and overwhelming them. And so they are still effective. Even in the case of Delta, everything I've seen as a scientist says that as well. Uh, articles published in The Lancet say that. My thing to your audience is COVID vaccines are safe. And if you haven't had one, I would get one. Thank you, Chris, for the uh, clarification. Now, tell us about your book and tell us about where people can find you. Yeah, well, no problem. Thanks, Peter. It's been great to be on, on the show. So I did write a book on AI technology. It's called Machine Learning with TensorFlow, second edition. You can find it on my website, mattman, M-A-T-T-M-A-N-N.ai. There's a link to it on there. But it's basically all about AI, different use cases, and it really covers a modern Google framework called TensorFlow that we use to implement machine learning and AI. A lot of the work that we talked about on this podcast I've done over the last 20 years, automation, different use cases, things like that, it's in the book. And so uh, you can check it out on my website and then you can find me on my website or you can find me on Instagram, uh, just at Chris Matman. And uh, it's the same on all social. So A great scientist, a great man, a great husband and a father, Chris Matman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks so much, Peter. Thanks for having me. It's a great show. Thanks for joining us today on another episode of the Coming Clean Podcast. Make sure to join Peter and his next guest on a brand new episode as we continue changing and impacting lives across the world. Share this episode with a friend, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Go ahead and get it fixed. Get it dash in my position. You would-